Thanks for tuning in to the Trinity Church Nottingham podcast. It's great to have you with us. My name is Amy, and together with my husband, Johnny, we lead the church here in Nottingham, England. Our vision is to see the church on fire and the city alive. And if we can help you in any way at all, feel free to get in touch and email us at info at trinitychurchnottingham.org. Okay, let's jump into the podcast. Welcome to Trinity. If you're new, uh, you're so welcome here. It's great to be it's great to gather together to be among uh, family and friends, old and new. And um, if you are new here, uh, we're a relatively new church too, so you haven't missed too much. We've been here for around the last three years, just a little bit less. And uh, we moved uh, to the city with the hope to establish a church, would just be a place of hope and life and light for this city. And uh, I don't know, the early signs are good. The early signs are good. And it's great to be gathered here this morning just experiencing and enjoying God, and we just believe here that the best news we have to share is God, it's the presence of God, that He's the source of all goodness and grace and mercy, and that, every, that there's nothing better any one of us could do with our lives than just to fully commit ourselves to Him and His purposes and His plans, and that as we do that, we come alive. And so if you're here exploring life and the meaning of it and everything else, uh, we hope you're in a good place and that you experience His goodness today. And I want to um, just remind some of us of a, one of the great days in recent history. And it was the 28th of August. My own birthday is on the 27th. For those of you who are keeping count, uh, on the 28th of August, it was a little bit before my birthday, it was in 1963. And on that great and auspicious day, as the slide displays, Martin Luther King Jr. delivered what has been cut, has come has been known since as one of the most iconic and important speeches, certainly in modern American history. And the ramifications and the the shockwaves, if you like, of the speech went way beyond America. But for America, this was one of its great days in its history and certainly its recent history. Let's be honest, America only has recent history, doesn't it? It's it's not really that old. Uh, Martin Luther King delivered this speech which was, uh, came to be known as the I Have a Dream speech to a quarter of a million people. Any public speakers here? Any teachers? Any preachers? Yeah, we've got a few in the room. Any people who deliver business presentations? You get a little bit nervous, don't you, every so often? You think about a room, a full room. A quarter of a million people. Just imagine that. Imagine the stage fright you would get uh, in that environment. And it was during the march, uh, which had actually only been... Uh, the March for Freedom, for Jobs and Freedom on Washington, it, the march had only been arranged very, uh, very quickly, actually. And so the plan hadn't been to do this for very long, but uh, 250,000 people approximately gathered. And, and King felt some anxiety, to be fair to say. He and his team were up until 4.30 a.m. the morning before, finishing off his speech, detailing exactly the policy points, the precise things that he would need to say in order to move and stir the people, to take the message forward. King himself, though, wanted to deliver a speech he'd delivered before in Detroit to do with a dream that he had. But one of his advisors says, no, you can't do that. It won't won't connect. It's a little bit cliche. It's hackneyed. You can't go for that. And King was uh, a long way into his speech, which was a great speech. It had... Policy, it had rhetoric. I mean, I don't think 
Martin Luther King Jr. has ever delivered anything subpar in his whole life. It was, it was a good speech, but it wasn't a great speech. And he found himself stumbling through parts of it. It had connected maybe with his own head, but it maybe hadn't connected with his heart. And he heard a voice behind him as he was stumbling through the words on the page. And the voice was the voice of a gospel singer, Mahalia Jackson. And she said, Martin, tell them the dream. Tell them about the dream. And King just shuffled his notes to the side. And you see it on the recording. I watched it yesterday. He just begins to look up, not down at his notes, but to the crowd, to the 250,000 faces gathered. And he begins to say, I have a dream. And ever since that day, that phrase has been trademarked as King's phrase, hasn't it? And he began to talk about the dream he had. The dream that one day my four little children will not grow up in a, a nation where they're judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream, he said. I mean, it was the most stirring. If you've never listened to that speech, you haven't lived. This is not the 27th of August, 1963. I am not Martin Luther King Jr. in <laughs> any way. I don't have... Uh, so much of what he had, I'm not standing here to call out systemic racial injustice, although somebody should, and certainly in America, and I'm sure also here in the UK. But I do have a dream. I do have a dream. Now, my dream is to see a church on fire. It isn't just a, a vision statement, you know, it's a dream. It's a dream. I want to see the church becoming all that she's called to be. I just I, I happen to believe that the best days of the church aren't behind her. That there is a day coming when Christians would rediscover their, their purpose. Where to uh, co-opt King's language. Where we might begin to live by our own creeds. Where we'd step out of the mediocrity and the lukewarmness that shrouds and encases us. We'd, we'd stop living in uh, almost synchronicity with the world. And we'd step out into the freedom that comes from worshipping him and him alone. Where we would go, as it were, all in on Christ. Where we'd stop living for Christ and something else, but we'd fully go after him. I have a dream of an outpouring of his presence that would capture the heart of the people of God. I have a dream of, the, of worship of the kind you and I have never imagined. Where worship teams are a footnote. I have a dream of the presence of God being poured out in preaching, so much so that people are on their knees before God weeping, not because the preachers got it, but because the Spirit of God is grasping people's hearts and lives. I have a dream of a people who don't compromise on faith, who are willing to read the Bible and live it because they believe and trust in the God who authored it. I have a dream of justice, which, as the Scriptures say, and King stole this bit from the Bible, where justice would roll down like rivers, like righteousness night, never failing streams. I've got a dream of a, that is to say, I've got a dream of worship that flows out into the world and changes the world. Of systems and structures being repurposed because of the power and the presence of God being poured out for the people of God. 
I dream of our children and our young people being set on fire by Jesus, leading us. It's happening already. How many of you heard them pray this morning and thought, I'd, I'd love to learn how to pray like that? I have a dream of our children not being held back by fear of man. Hasn't that, hasn't that ruined the spiritual lives of so many of us? We'd love to go all in, but we're worried about what our neighbor might think. What if we become a bit too churchy, a bit too preachy? I have a dream of a generation of people who just don't give a crap. And yes, I said crap. I have a dream of people who are just captured by the goodness of God and fired forward in holiness. I've got a dream of innovation. People in the heart of the church grasping and capturing uh, pictures of what it would look like to innovate in arts and in business and bringing justice into the world. Who would run businesses not for the bottom line but for the common good. You know God has a dream. God has a dream for his church. God has a dream for the world. And it is that the whole world will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord even as the waters cover the sea. God has a dream to fill creation again with his presence. That is why he called the people to start with Israel and now the church. God has a dream. But it is my conviction for the dream to become a reality. We are going to need to step up. We need what Wilberforce called a reformation of manners. Now, it doesn't mean that we go around saying please and thank you to one another. You give me a coffee in the morning at church. I say, oh, thank you very much. That's not even about washing our hands after going uh, to the toilet. Though, by the way, if you're not doing that, that's a public health hazard. (laughs) As well as bad manners, particularly if you're shaking my hand. But it is about saying, God, there has to be. There has to be more that you want from me. There has to be more that you want from me, and I'm willing to give you all of it. I was reading this morning Psalm 12, because it happens to be the 12th. And this is what it says. Help, Lord, for no one is faithful anymore. Those who are loyal have vanished from the human race. Everyone lies to their neighbor. They flat with their lips, with, but harbor deception in their hearts. How much does that sound like our world? Flattery and lying. Who's loyal anymore? They've vanished, haven't they, from the human race. Everyone lies to their neighbor. No one's faithful anymore. That's what we're seeing in our world. It's I've got to be honest, a lot of times I look at the church and look at my own life and I see that too and I'm just wondering, God, we need, when are you going to do what we're asking you to do? And he's saying, Johnny, when are you going to take me seriously? When are you going to put in place what I've asked you to put in place in your own life? Psalm 29 was just a read to us. I just want to point to it really quickly. It says, isn't it, as as George read, the voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. In his his temple all cry glory. Yes, we want that, don't we? We want to be in this place. That's the dream I've got, that we'd all be crying glory, manifest presence of God. But just before that, it says, the voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. Kadesh, Kadesh, as we're about to see, is... A close bedfellow, that word, a close bedfellow to the Hebrew word kadosh, which means holy. For the glory of the Lord to be manifest in the temple of the Lord, we need a people who are willing to be shaken by the voice of God, who are willing to cry out holy, willing to live holy lives. We need, in other words, saints. Saints. 
I don't know what happens in your mind when you think of the word saints. Maybe it, maybe some particular uh, historic figure, maybe a Catholic figure, somebody who's been beatified because they uh, were seen to have, uh, I was going to say, perpetrated two or more miracles. What's the word I'm looking for? Not perpetrated, makes it sound so negative. They've been part of something miraculous and they've lived a particularly uh, distinct life. Maybe that's what you think of when you hear the word saints. Well, over the next few weeks, six weeks or so, we're going to be looking at what it means to be a saint. Live a life of sainthood in the modern world. I'm going to be taking a look at the scriptures, at Matthew, we've looked at that already, but also uh, uh, the lives of uh, Christians through the ages. Because I want us to be inspired by the message and the life of those who've gone before. So what is a saint? Well, look at this. This is what Paul says to the church in Colossae. That's certainly my best attempt uh, to explain or to, dis- uh, to pronounce that word. Colossae, there we have it. On the screen, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people or to the saints in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. What is a saint? Well, actually, what we see here, which is really profound, and you'd miss it if you skip over the beginning bit of all the letters that Paul writes, right? The, the intro. It's like, don't, it's like when you write an essay, don't read my intro, just read the middle bit. Uh, the intro is just preface. Well, actually, it's really significant, this. What Paul is saying is, uh, by saying this, he's authoring this, he's sending it to a group of people that he describes as saints. Some translations say saints, others say holy ones. Now what's significant about that is that Paul is authoring this to a people who he says are already saints. The word here is, uh, in Greek at least, is hagioi. Hagioi. Say that. Say that to your neighbor now. Hagioi. Say, that, say this. You're being a right Hagioi. <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> Hagioi. There we go. It means holy ones or holy people. And it's drawn, it's, uh, it's drawn from an Old Testament word. And that word, as we've described already, is kadosh. Kadosh. This is a word used throughout the Bible. And it's used particularly to describe the essence and the nature of God. God is above all else, kadosh. He is holy, he's set apart, he's other. And it literally means, as I've said, to be distinct, to be set apart, to be peculiar even, to be different or distinct. Now, in what way is God distinct? In what way is he holy? I think if we did a straw poll of the room, we'd probably get most people saying something like, He's holy in respect of the fact that he is sinless. He is without flaw. He lacks nothing. He's perfect. And that certainly is true. God doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't err. He's not, he doesn't compromise on his values. He lives his character out fully and completely every day. If you like, that's a negative way to define holiness. And it's important. God's peculiar. He's other. He's distinct. And his, his perfection, his lack of imperfection, is powerful in and of itself. And, it doesn't, but, and that is true, but it's also not saying enough. We need to describe holiness positively as well. And if we were doing so, we'd say something like, God's holiness, his kadoshness, is his bounty, his fullness. 
His abundance, his completeness, his richness. It's not just that he lacks flaw. It's what he's filled with. That's his holiness. We would say that God's holiness is the superlative of every one of his values and his virtues. It's like, it's his veriness. But veriness doesn't come close. You may see beauty in the world. You may see a particularly beautiful sunset, a sunrise, a particularly beautiful person, a particularly beautiful goal scored by Manchester City. You may see beauty in the world. God's holiness means his beauty is not like that beauty. That is a pale imitation of his beauty. You may see an act of mercy and kindness and grace. Understand that because God is holy, that's only a faint echo of who he is. His mercy is so much purer. It's so much richer. You may see an example of truth. Even King's speech was true, wasn't it? In the deepest way that humans can access, I think. And yet God's truth is so much truer that it would, it would explode us if we even came into contact with it. That's the holiness of God. That's the kadoshness of God. And throughout the Bible, we're told that we're to be holy. Leviticus 19.2, and it's echoed in 1 Peter 1, says, Be holy as I am holy. Which means move away from that which stains and corrupts. Be distant from sin. Be distant from imperfection. All that which dehumanizes, get away from it. But positively be full of abundance, of mercy, of truth, of all the things which are best in the world. Fill your life with beauty and honor. Get in the face of glory and holiness. That's what it means to be holy as he's holy. And what's happening here in Colossians, and it happens throughout the introduction to almost every letter that Paul writes to the church, is that Paul says that the people of God, as they are now, are saints. And that is profound. Paul does not say, guys, when you get it together, let's have a conversation about whether you're able to reach into the next level of Christian devotion called holiness. Some of you have seen signs, but most of you are really screwing up quite regularly, and you're not ready for it yet. No, no, no. Paul doesn't do that. He says, no, you saints to the saints in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters. He says this to, as I said, almost every church he addresses. He even says it in Corinth. And those guys did not have a clue what was going on. I mean, seriously, you've got people in that congregation sleeping with their own mothers-in-law. And to that people, Paul says, saints. This is a definition, an identity given as a gift by God. And this changes everything. It means that the New Testament ethic isn't become something in order to be approved. The New Testament ethic, because of the work, the finished work of Christ on the cross, is this. Become what you have been declared to be already in Christ. 
Become what you are. You're called holy. You're declared holy. God looks at all of you and his cross stands above you all and says, if you're in Christ, you're holy. Now get about becoming holy. Because you've been deemed to be holy. Holiness is not something we pursue in order to be approved of by God. I've shouted this. It's in capitals. It's something we pursue because we've been approved of by God. And what's stunning about the New Testament vision is that it's ordinary people who captured this. Ordinary people who Paul describes as saints. You know, there were were celebrities early on in the church. Christian celebrities, I'm going to hammer Christian celebrityism this morning, and that is because I hate it. Uh, Christian celebrities at this point, we didn't have Instagram, but there were some people who knew a thing or two, right? People who'd been with Jesus. And what's fascinating about the movement of Christianity, as we're about to see through the, the world, the Roman Empire, is that it wasn't primarily the celebrities who carried it. I'm reading a book, been reading a book recently, I mentioned it last week, called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. And it looks at the success of the early church. And uh, one of the people it quotes is a guy called Rodney Stark, who's a sociologist, is now retired, sociologist in a, a university, I think it was Bailey University, actually. And, and Stark uh, looks at the, uh, the statistics for growth, uh, which suggests that by the early 4th century, between 8 and 12% of the imperial, that is the Roman Empire's population, had come to Christ. And tracing back, and some people disagree with him on his maths and uh, take or leave that, but he suggests that for that to have taken place, there must have been 40% growth in the church every decade up until the early part of the 4th century. It's extraordinary growth. And it's amazing, not least because there was barely any social advantage to join the church. In fact, it was penalized socially. You'd have to have a very, very good reason to join the church in the early days. And the only real reason would be you actually believed it was true. You know, it wasn't that you, uh, I know there was better coffee on it. Did they, did they drink coffee in Rome? I just don't know. But there was no social advantage, is my point. How then did it grow? Here's how it, uh, here's how it grew. It wasn't through gathered services. It was through scattered servants. And the scattered servants were ordinary people. This is my point. It wasn't preachers standing up on the street corner. You couldn't do that. Do you know, actually, uh, if you weren't part of the church, that is to say, if you hadn't been baptized, you couldn't even come to Sunday worship at this point. Those who were in process of getting ready to be baptized could come to the service. They couldn't stay for the Eucharist. In other words, it wasn't popular big churches pumping out uh, messages that uh, enticed people. It was actually really private. It was all about the power of the people of God, the ordinary saints in the world. It wasn't gathered services. It was scattered servants. It wasn't celebrities. It was saints. In that book, The Patient for Men, I read this. Of course, there were no missionary societies at that period and no parachurch mission agencies Surprisingly, there are only two missionaries whose names we know. There simply are no others. The bearers of the faith are nameless. I love that. Nameless! Reminds me of a a quote, I think it's Count Zinzendorf, who said, this was his aim for life, preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. What an amazing thing. 
The bearers of the faith were nameless. It was ordinary people, ordinary people, the kind of people who Paul calls saints. They were the people who carried it. It wasn't the Christian super apostles. It wasn't Peter dangling around his handkerchief or Paul wandering around telling the stories of his conversion. That was important as a catalytic thing. But beyond that, it was men and women. In fact, women were described usually as the most prominent evangelists. It was men and women just carrying the faith. And it wasn't in words, it was in deeds. And this is what we need to hear today. Beloved brethren, this is a a sermon from Cyprian, the bishop in North Africa. He wrote, beloved brethren, he wrote, we are philosophers not in words but in deeds. We exhibit our wisdom not by our dress but by truth. We know virtues by their practice rather than through boasting of them. We do not speak great things, but we live them. Wow. Don't you want to be part of a church that lives great things? Can I tell you this? You are destined to live a great life. A great life. You were created to carry the image and likeness of God. Greatness is your destiny. It is the purpose, it's the reason, the very reason God created you was to give you his own image. How could he do any more than that? And the image of God we read in the scriptures was stained by sin. And so God says, look, I'm going to restore the image and I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to fill them. Not just my image in them, but my very self, my presence, my kavod, my, my glory will live in them. My holy Spirit, the reason that the church, the reason that the humans are called to live holiness is because we carry a Holy Spirit. We're called to carry God. And anytime we meddle with stuff which is less than the fullness that God has for us, we fall short of the glory we're supposed to carry. It's not that God wants to wrestle you away from lives of unholiness because he wants to kill your joy. He wants to bring you joy. He wants to fill you with joy in life and goodness. What was it that described, that marked the church out as distinct? What was it? Well, Justin, uh, an early second century martyr, actually talks uh, about a number of things. He he describes four things. I'm just going to pick two quickly, and the first one I'm going to race over. Just to warn you, this has a little bit of a PG warning, so um, if there are children in the place, just be aware of that. Justin speaks about uh, two things. I'm going to talk about two. The first is continence. And I know what you're thinking. Continence is to do with uh, not weeing yourself, isn't it? But it's actually different. In the early church, this uh, using that word particularly, because it was used by the early church, and also because it alliterates. And that matters to me. (laughs) Continence. And by that, he means sexual ethics. And we talked some about this last week. But I just think as the church, we need to have our minds opened again, don't we, to the, call, the biblical call on our lives in the area of our sexual ethics. In the area, I, by the way, if you're visiting from outside the church, I'm not speaking to you. This is not for you. What I'm about to say might sound peculiar to you, and that's okay. And you can feel free to disregard it if you'd like to. I'm talking to the church. I'm talking to people who call themselves followers of Christ. Because that's that's who we're addressing. It's not our job to tell anyone else how to live. 
But for those who are in Christ, the, the Bible gives us a vision of flourishing humanity which has to do with faithfulness in relationships, doesn't it? And one of the things I think we've most wounded ourselves as a church is by buying into the myth uh, that it's prevalent in the world, that in, order to, that in order to become a fully functioning human being, you have to be sexually active. That's what the world teaches us. It teaches us that to be a fully functioning human being, you've got to, be, you've got to have a, a full-on or an active sex, sex life. I, I'm just going to say to the church at this point, if that's the case, then Jesus was subhuman. The Bible's clear that he never had that kind of relationship. And so for those of us in the church, we've just got to question that premise. But what we have to say is that you can't be a fully functioning human being without relationship. You can't be a fully functioning human being without friendship and, and deep soul level intimacy. But that does not mean gratifying every desire that comes across our hard drive. That's not what we're called to. We're called to live lives of faithfulness in relationship and to model that. And one of the most powerful things the church had was this. Keller, and I've quoted this before. I'll do it again. I've used this before to talk about generosity, and here I am to talk about something else. The early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically everybody their body. And the Christian came along and gave practically nobody their body and gave everybody their money. Church, we're called to more. Your body, in fact, uh, your body is worth more. Do you know that sex is, that the church has a much higher view of sex than any of our culture? Our culture talks all about it. It is everywhere. And it, what it describes and what it displays is an immensely low view of sex, an immensely low view of what is happening uh, when, uh, I won't go into detail. Church has a higher vision, a higher view. The world misdirects desire for God toward other people in lust. The church says, no, let's point all of that to God. He is the true goal and end of all desire. Secondly, as well as continents, Asia, Africa, Europe, continents, we also have compassion, Thank you. Little dad joke there to lighten the mood. <laughs> Compassion. How we treat our enemies particularly and how we love the poor. Jesus said what? You'll know my disciples by? Yes, thank you, Josh. Whether the way that they love one another, whether they have love for one another. This is uniquely to describe and uh, uh, to speak of the Christian community. Now, the church had an opportunity to do this in the, in the early life of the church. There was Two massive plagues in the Roman uh, world. And the second of those was in 251, around 251 AD. And there was a particular uh, outbreak of it in northern Africa. And it came after the church had been through an empire-wide persecution. And they were being forced, basically, to give worship to pagan, pagan, worship, uh, pagan idols. Some of the church uh, avoided this. Other parts of the church went in for it. And that then created a disagreement between parts of the church who had... Uh, uh, given themselves over to pagan worship and parts that hadn't. So there's disunity within the church, there's persecution from outside, and on top of that, we have this plague. Now this plague was so bad that it was, uh, uh, people would become violently ill, they would vomit, there would be diarrhea, there would be fevers and even putrefaction, that's where people's bodies just begin to rot. 
killed many people. Others, uh, those who could fled. And others, what they would do is as soon as you found somebody uh, who was taken by the plague, you just put them out into the street. If you couldn't get away from Carthage in North Africa, you just put them out into the street, even including members of your own family, often while they were still alive, just given away. And you can understand the human uh, thing going on there. In the midst of this, Cyprian, one of the early bishops in the North African church, called the church together. He knew they were being blamed for the plague by pagans, which happened a lot. He knew that there were divisions within the body. And he knew uh, the temptation to run and the temptation to hide. He gathered them together and he said, look, this isn't what we do, is it? We're not the kind of people who are known for running. We're not the kind of people who put our sick out into the streets. We've got to find a better way. And he called them to embody the kind of compassion that speaks of a God who is holy. And they did. They began to give a basic nursing care to their own who were sick. And they began to give basic nursing care to those who were outside the Christian community also who were sick. And it's uh, estimated again by Rodney Stark that they lowered mortality by up to two-thirds. This is Kadosh. This is Haggai Oi. This is saintly living, isn't it? Compassion like that is holy. Here's what the bishop Dionysius of Alexander wrote to members of his congregation saying, Most of our brothers showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy. Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their deaths to themselves and died in their stead. It wasn't the apostles who did this. The ordinary saints. People like you and me. People who are nameless to this day. Who've been so captured by the goodness of Jesus, so filled with the power of the Spirit, that they wanted to give their all to following him. To summarize, from an anonymous second century Christian letter, for Christians are no different from other people in terms of their country, language, or customs. Nowhere do they inhabit cities of their own, use a strange dialect, or live life out of the ordinary. They inhabit both Greek and barbarian cities according to the lot assigned to each. And they show forth the character of their own citizenship in a marvelous and admittedly paradoxical way by following local customs in what they wear and what they eat and in the rest of their lives. They live in their respective countries but only as resident aliens. They participate in all things as citizens and they endure all things as foreigners. They marry like everyone else and have children, but they do not expose them. That is, leave them out to die, which was a common practice in the early uh, Roman Empire there. They do not expose them once they are born. They share their meals, but not their sexual partners. They are obedient to the laws that have been made, and by their own lives they supersede the laws. They are impoverished and make many rich. To put the matter simply, what the soul is in the body, that is what the Christians are in the world. Wow. What a vision. What the soul is in the body. That the life-giving force, the bit you can't see that brings the whole thing to life, 
What the soul is in the body, so the church is in the world. Trinity Church, Nottingham. Saints. That's what Paul would say. To the saints in Nottingham. You know that's what you are. That is who you are. You are saints. You look beautiful. Yes, Jeff, come on. You are. You are incredible. You are amazing. God has filled you with his spirit. And he longs to continually fill you with his life, with his spirit, so that all that would come out of you would be for the benefit and the blessing of the world around you. And all you need to do is this. Jesus, I am all in. Whatever it takes, wherever you would lead me, whatever you would demand of me, whatever you would require of my personal, my public, my private life, it's all for you. I want to live a life that is full of abundance and bounty, just as you are full of abundance and bounty. And Lord, if somebody calls me a resident alien, (laughs) I'll take it as a pat on the back. I'm so into you and your kingdom. Imagine what difference a church on fire could make in a city like ours. Could we not, in fact, see a city alive? Why don't we stand and we'll pray as we close. Uh, The purpose of a message like this is never, and a series like this, is never to create and stir up guilt and shame. The truth is there is not a single, there is only one human being throughout history who's lived a life of perfection. His name is Jesus. We're here to worship him. And he stands above all of us. He's the one that we come to. And we come to him today being assured of his grace, his forgiveness, that he, in fact, wants to look us in the eye and says, you are my holy child. In you, I am pleased. But he also wants to call us and invite us into a life lived with him, a life lived after him. It's going to be granular. I had a conversation with somebody last week where they talked about their own life and they talked about the fact they'd just become a father. And in, uh, because of this, uh, they wanted to be more present with their child. And so they changed jobs so they could be more present with their child. And I thought to myself in that moment, that's holiness. Hit on two particular areas, continence and compassion today. But the scope of holiness is so broad and wide. And the Holy Spirit will inspire us. Can I just invite you to open your hands? Thanks for listening to some of our teaching here at Trinity. We hope it's blessed you. If you live in the city or live outside of Nottingham and want to connect more with the church, check out some of our practices and pathways on our website. We call them one, few, company, and many. We're passionate about encountering Jesus, becoming like him, and doing the things that he did, both individually and in our lives together, so that we may see the church on fire and the city come alive. You can find these on our website under the Connect tab. Thanks for listening.